Let's pray. Father, we don't deserve you. We deserve death. We deserve damnation. Um, but we don't deserve you. And you and your infinite love and grace have scooped us out of the muck and the mire, Lord, and claimed us to be your own. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your grace that you lavish upon us. We thank you, God, that you are so good to us and you give us, you give us material things, you give us spiritual riches, Lord, and none of that do we deserve, but you still give it to us. You are a good God. You are a generous God. And we thank you. And Lord, I pray today that you would help us to be followers of your word, to be doers of your word, to hear the word, Lord, and put it into action. I ask, God, that you would um, open up our minds, open up our hearts to hear from your word today. Uh, Let us be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger, God. We pray for our children as they're being ministered to as well in class that you would tend to their hearts and you would be uh, the great shepherd to them as well. Lord, we want to see each one of them come to a saving faith in you. We want them to know the excellencies, and the beauty of salvation. So I pray that you would grant that to them. I pray for any here that might not know you, that you would grant that to them as well. And we ask, Lord, that you would be glorified today in our midst. We pray this with the authority you give us in Jesus. Amen. I'm going to continue on talking about really the vision for liberty, which is um, kind of encapsulated in three key words that I've been talking about. Do you guys remember those words? What's the first one? Belong. Second? And the third? Go. And um, let's see how you guys do with the phrase. We belong. That's all right. We're still working together. So, you know, it's a, it's a work in progress. We all are. Belong to the body of Christ. Flourish as disciples, and go in service and mission, which includes the lost. <clears throat> All right, um, C minus, that's okay. <laughs> so I'm going to continue talking about belong. I've been talking about belong to the body of Christ in regards to really salvation, belonging to Jesus. Now we're going to look at belonging to the body of Christ in terms of what it means and relates to the local church. Um, When theologians talk about the church, there's really kind of two aspects they talk about. They talk about the universal church and the local church. The universal church is the community of all true believers for all time. Past, present, future. That's the universal church. It's also called the invisible church because we can't see people's hearts, right? So the universal church, all believers for all time, it is the church as God sees it. It's the church as God sees it. Then you have what would be called the uh, local church, and it always um, refers to a specific 
location. It's also called the visible church. Why? Because you got buildings and you got people gathering together. You got specific locations. Let's look at just a couple references in Scripture to see, because that's what we're going to focus on today, is the local church. So um, keep your finger in 1 Timothy, because we're going to come back to it. But let's look at 1 Corinthians 1. So Paul starts out, verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. All right, specific location. It's talking about the church at Corinth. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Warm up your fingers because we're going to be turning to some different books and chapters and verses today. 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's in each of the letters, right, of the New Testament, not each, but um, many of the letters of the New Testament are written to specific churches. Specific churches. Some of those churches were big, some of them were small. Look at Philemon. You have to find it first, right? <laughs> Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Right? Specific location. And one more verse, Romans 16. This is at the end. Paul's giving greetings to various people. He starts in verse 3, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Notice the plural, right? All the churches, plural, different locations. Then it says in verse 5, greet also the church in their house. All right, so you have the universal church, or the invisible church, but then you have the local church, which is the visible church. Um, back in 1 Timothy, did you guys hold your place there? I want you to notice something in this verse that we read. I want you to notice one little word. In verse 15, he says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And I want you to focus on that word, in. In refers normally to location. So it refers to location, where you're at in some way, and usually it means an enclosed location, in the school, in the supermarket. Um, always refers to a specific location. Uh, last week, in church location. So in the household of God refers to a specific location. Now this makes sense because Paul's writing to Timothy, who many people believe was the pastor at Ephesus. Well, what's my point? My point is, uh, this household of God, which here refers to a specific location, is called the pillar and support of the truth. So, how one ought to behave in the household of God, specific location, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and support of the truth. The local church is both a pillar in support of the truth. Not just the universal church, but also the local church. And we are called to be a part of that. We're called to be a part of the pillar and support, holding up the truth for the world to see. So the question is this. Do you want to be a part of that pillar? 
Do you want to be a supporter of that truth? All right. You know, you guys were talking a whole lot last week with Pastor Leron, okay? <clears throat> that is true. He kind of did a good job with that, right? <laughs> So how do you do that? How do you be a, a, a part of the pillar? How do you be a part of the support? Well, by being a part of the church, right? Not on the fringe, but involved. Not on the sidelines, but in the game. Now, uh, last time I spoke, we talked about the United, I talked about the United Methodist Church, and actually the day I spoke, they were doing that big vote in the United Methodist Church, um, regarding really homosexuality and if they were going to basically embrace it or say, no, it's, it's sinful. And surprisingly, actually, the vote came down in the United Methodist Church, um, 438 to 384, to keep what they were calling the traditional plan, which was to continue to hold to really faithful biblical Christianity, that homosexuality was the sin. Amen, right? <clears throat> um. And I wanted to read, uh, the day before the vote, they had kind of a breakfast, um, I think, for everybody, and an African bishop um, spoke at it. And I just want you to hear um, the boldness and the forthrightness which with he addressed, um, really people from all nations uh, that were United Methodists there. And he says this, uh, friends, please hear me, we Africans are not afraid of our sisters and brothers who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, questioning, or queer. This is the bishop from Liberia. We love them and we hope the best for them, but we know of no compelling arguments for forsaking our church's understanding of Scripture and the teachings of the church universal. And then please hear me when I say as graciously as I can, we Africans are not children in need of Western enlightenment when it comes to the church's sexual ethics. We do not need to hear a progressive U.S. bishop lecture us about our need to grow up. Let me assure you, we Africans, whether we have liked it or not, have had to engage in this debate for many years now. We stand with the global church, not a culturally liberal church elite in the U.S. We are grounded in God's word and the gracious and clear teachings of our church. On that, we will not yield. We will not take a road that leads us from the truth. We will take the road that leads to the making of disciples of Jesus Christ for transformation of the world. I hope and pray for your sake that you will walk down that road with us. We would warmly welcome you as our traveling companions, but if you choose another road, we Africans cannot go with you. He goes on further. Unfortunately, some United Methodists in the U.S. have the very faulty assumption that all Africans are concerned about is U.S. financial support. Well, I am sure, being sinners like all of you, some Africans are fixated on money. But with all due respect, a fixation on money seems more of an American problem than an African one. We get by on far less than most Americans do. We know how to do it. I'm not so sure you do. So if anyone is so naive or condescending as to think we would sell our birthright in Jesus Christ for American dollars, then they simply do not know us. Right? 
We are seriously joyful in following Jesus Christ and God's holy word to us in the Bible. And in truth, we think many people in the U.S. and in parts of Europe could learn a great deal from us. Please understand me when I say the vast majority of African United Methodists will never, ever trade Jesus and the truth of the Bible for money. We will walk alone if necessary, and yet we are confident the ties of Christian fellowship we have with friends here in the U.S. will not be severed, even if they too must walk apart from a church that would not follow the biblical dictates of Scripture. Amen. I mean, what boldness and conviction, right, that this man spoke with, um, addressing these people at this breakfast? I mean, why? Because he had a conviction based on God's word. So he stood on that word. What's his conviction based on? What's his standard based on? The word. And what about us? What about us? Like, think for a second. I just want you to think for a second. Like, why do you guys read your Bible? I mean, to get closer to God, that's good, right? Um, To gain biblical knowledge, that's good. To gain biblical wisdom, that's good. How about this? To think God's thoughts after him. That's the famous saying of really what is, uh, who is considered the father of modern astronomy, Johannes Kepler, a German Lutheran. And he said this, uh, he discovered the laws of planetary motion. He said, I was merely thinking God's thoughts after him. Since we astronomers are priests of the highest God in regard to the book of nature, it benefits us to be thoughtful, not of the glory of our minds, but rather, above all else, of the glory of God. Isn't that good? So when we are thinking about the Bible and why we're reading the Bible, um, what we're looking for, well, what we're looking for, I want you to see it in Romans 8. This is what we're looking for in Romans 8. Now, we're going to start in 28, which is a verse that you hear quoted, actually hear misquoted a lot, but you also hear quoted a lot. So let's read it so it's, we can see that the truthfulness of what it is saying. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. A lot of times you just hear, God works all things together for good, right? Well, it's really, God works all things together for good for those who love him. We really need to include that part. So we know God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then it says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. So that that little phrase, conformed to the image of his Son, that's where I want to park for just a second. That's really not just some kind of external reality, it's an internal reality. There's a transformation that is going on. You're not just conformed to an outward image, you're being conformed on the inside with an inward image. And I'm concerned um, that sometimes some of us read the Bible in like a detached way from the reality of life. Because really our hope should be to be conformed to the image of his son. Really, we might just use one word, sanctification, which just means set apart. All right, We're becoming more and more like Christ. We're becoming holy. But I'm concerned some of us read the Bible in a detached way 
from the reality of life. I mean, do you ever think about what does the Bible say about abortion? Or what does the Bible say about political ideologies like democracy, capitalism, socialism, communism, a dictatorship? I mean, would we even know why a dictatorship is wrong? What about feeding the poor? What about providing for the homeless? What about wealth re redistribution? I mean, does the Bible even address these things? Would we even know if it does? Well, we won't if we're not in it. So I have two concerns here. First, we read the Bible, and it doesn't even affect our character in the least. So you read it, and you're having your quiet time, and you're still a sassy, rude, condescending, impatient, unkind, unloving person. I mean, it's not doing much for you. But you read your Bible. I mean, if, if, if that's you, then you're just, you're just treating it like a history book. You're just going through the motions. I mean, is it possible to read this book and not be changed? Yes, right? I mean, you're kind of like, oh, yeah. It's true, you can. Many people have. But whose fault is that? Right? It's our fault. And don't get me wrong here, I'm not teaching like a moral reform. This isn't like Miss Molly's School of Manners or something like that. Um, not teaching moral reform, we're teaching transformation. Transformation. So moral reform can simply be like external. Uh, transformation is internal change. And this is what the gospel can do for each one of us. And it's the only thing. It is the only thing that can do it. Gospel transformation. Look, it can take an alcoholic and it can change her life. It can take a fornicator and it can change his life. It can take a mean, bitter person and change his life. And it can take someone just like you and change your life. The gospel transforms someone from the inside out. And we need to make sure we are letting the word do that to us. Are you letting the word do that to you? Okay. Second, my, my other concern is this. Um, you read the, the Bible, and it doesn't affect your thoughts on God's world. It doesn't affect your view of God's world. You know, I'm talking about, like, culture, about society. I mean, from reading the Bible, my views on personal finances have changed. My views on politics have changed. My views on the environment have changed. My views on the workforce have changed. My views on economics have changed. Things some of you wouldn't even consider moral issues. But there are biblical principles that govern all of these areas. And some people um, are like, oh, la-di-da, I'm so great with Jesus, it's so wonderful. Well, great for you. But you're, it's just not you and Jesus, honestly. You're part of a community. God's placed you here, not just to be a little ascetic monk somewhere, but to be part of a community, to be a change agent, to be a difference maker for him in society and in your church. So the word says, your word is a lamp to my feet. So it either shows us the way or it doesn't. But his word says, uh, my word is a lamp to your feet. Some say it just shows us what we needed to get, need, it just shows us what we need to do to get saved, and the rest is irrelevant. Well, guess what? If that's the case, God could have made a much shorter Bible, okay? Could have been a little booklet or something. We need to be grounded in the Word, okay? It speaks to all things relevant to all of life.
Yes, most importantly, our souls. Most importantly, where we are going when we die. Most importantly, our relationship with the Lord. But it speaks to a whole host of other things, and we need to let the Word inform us how we think on those things. All right, listen, I don't care what you all think. I care what God thinks, right? That should be our attitude. We need to care what God thinks and think his thoughts after him. So let's talk about churchless Christianity for a second. Have you ever talked to someone who said they were a Christian but didn't go to church? I mean, can that even really be a thing? I mean, I know it kind of is a thing, but it's kind of a weird thing. Belonging to a local church shows you believe you belong to the universal church. I mean, think about that. I mean, if, you, if you really believe you're part of the universal church, if you really believe you're a believer, part of God's great church from past, present, and future, it, it, it would just make sense you'd want to actually express that by actually going to a local church. It's kind of a big sign to everyone else, believers and unbelievers, that you're a believer, at least that you're claiming to be one. All right? when, when you wake up in the morning and you're pulling out of the driveway and your neighbors see you, well, okay, they're probably still sleeping, um, but when they see you come home today right, and you're dressed up um, halfway decently, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they see you dressed up like you didn't just come from the ballpark or something. It's really a statement to them. And when they see that week after week after week after week after week, they will catch on at some point that they know where you're going on Sunday mornings. People aren't stupid, right? It's a statement to them. Now think if you knew someone who said they love playing basketball. I'm like, I'm a basketball player. I'm a team player. I love playing basketball. And you're like, what, what local team do you play for? Well, I don't play on a team. It's just me and the basketball and the hoop. And you'd be like, that's weird, okay? <laughs> a basketball player needs a basketball team. All right, think, think even further. I mean, when you say to someone, like, what sport, hey, what sport do you play? You look athletic, what sport do you play? Oh, basketball. I mean, what's the next question you're probably going to ask them? Like, wh whom do you play for? It's assumed the person plays on a team. Why? Basketball is a team sport. It's about who you are, a basketball player, and who you're with, a basketball team. And I don't know how it works in your house, um, but in my house, there's only one basketball team that really matters. Do you know what team that is? <laughs> I tricked you all, all right? Because it's the team my kids play for. Y'all thought I was going to say my favorite college team. <clears throat> there, it's the team my kids play for. And because they play for that team... What do I do? I pull for that team. I root for that team. I support the players on that team. They're not just players on that team, though. They're team players. You understand what I'm saying? But that's what many of us try to do sometimes with our walk with the Lord. We're like a basketball player without a team that thinks he's okay. And Christianity is a team sport. I mean, go to that basketball player without a team. Ask him, Hey, how's that working out for you? I mean, you know, and, and think even more for a second. Like, what happens to that player? Do they get better? A team of one? No, 
Do they enjoy the game as much? I don't even know if they can play the game. What can they do? They can go in the gym and shoot free throws, right? <clears throat> Listen, Christians need other Christians. And it's hard for some of us to admit that. To recognize it, to acknowledge it, even to believe it, it's true. Listen, we are built for community. Let's take it all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve, he created them and he placed them in community. The first community was with him, really, and then community with one another. But think about it. If the primary design was really not community, he could have created two gardens, right? One for Adam, one for Eve. But he didn't. Just one garden. Adam doesn't have his garden. Eve doesn't have her garden. One garden. We are built for community, even from the very beginning. What did God say, it is not good for man to be alone. Primarily referencing marriage, but I also think hinting at our need for community. Even Paul saw the need for community. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So Paul's talking in this letter to the Thessalonians. He starts in verse 5 of chapter 2. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, I kind of like that, affectionately desirous, All right, very desirous, being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. The Apostle Paul, right? If anyone really shouldn't need companionship, I mean, it should be Paul, right? He should be okay. He's the Apostle. But what's he saying here? He wanted to partner with them, and he had a love for them. And he wanted to be a part with them. And think about it. Every missionary journey he took, did he just go off solo? No. Always had companions. And think about Jesus when he sent out the disciples. How did he send them out one time? Two by two, right? Belonging in a community. But how do we feel sometimes? When we think of community, when we think of belonging, you know how I think we think sometimes? We're kind of like Elijah. <clears throat> Elijah, you guys know the story, Mount Carmel, right? They gather the prophets of Baal. Yes? No? Sort of? Okay. <clears throat> so the prophets of Baal are all gathered, and they got two different sets of sacrifices going on. And Elijah's like, hey, you call on your God, and, and let's see if he can light the fire. And then I'll call him my God. And it's just like hours and hours, and they're doing all sorts of crazy stuff, cutting themselves and chanting and all sorts of crazy stuff, right? And then Elijah's like, okay, it's my turn. And what does he do? I mean, he just like takes gallons of waters, and he's like pouring it over the wood and pouring it over the wood. And what happens? He prays. God licks up the sacrifice. Boom, right? But what happens after that? 
I mean, that's the cool part, right? But there's something that happens after that. Look in 1 Kings, because I want you to see it yourself. 1 Kings, let's look at um, 19. So he does this, uh, really God does this great thing through Elijah. Then it says in verse uh, 1 of 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword, talking about the prophets of Baal. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So God does this like mighty thing, right? And then Jezebel threatens his life, and he runs away. And what ends up happening, he has this um, conversation really with the Lord. It's a, it's a cool story, we don't have time to look at it. But he is feeling isolated and alone. He's feeling completely by himself. <clears throat> um, I'm trying to see, I, I didn't write the verse down, sorry. There it is, verse 10, thank you. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. I mean, he's feeling isolated and alone. He doesn't feel like he, he has community. But go down. This is the Lord, Lord's reply. He says in verse 15, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So there was 7,000. God had 7,000. Elijah, think, Elijah thinks he's the only one left. The only one left. Yet God still had 7,000. And the New Testament references this as well. 7,000. Guess what? Sometimes the enemy can make us think we are isolated, that we're alone. That's not the case. That is a lie. You are not alone. You are not isolated. Just like the Lord says here, there's 7,000. Look, there are, well, who knows how many? Hundreds of millions, a billion, I don't know, maybe billions of people, past, present, and future, that are the Lord's. And look, this congregation enough is alone to stand, but there are tens of thousands, hundreds of, probably millions of churches that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So you're not alone. In whatever circumstance, you're not alone. You are not alone. So you stand. You don't stand. You stand firm. But people are standing with you. They're supporting you. They're by your side. They got your back. Look at one last, one last verse in Romans, Romans 16. In verse 22, it says this, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, the first time I read this, when I got saved, I was like, whoa, Tertius wrote the letter? I thought Paul wrote the letter. What's going on here? 
This is the person who wrote the letter down which Paul dictated to them. The fancy name is an amanuensis, if you want the fancy name. Someone who writes down a letter that is dictated to them. Um, his name, Tertius, it's a Latin name, a Roman name, simply means third. Simply means third. Um, very likely he was a slave, and his uh, slave owner just named his slaves first, second, third, fourth. But this slave had an ability, a gifting, in writing. And the Lord used his gift. And Paul saw the importance of including Tertius in his work and letting him sign his name. There's not a lot of letters where the amanuensis gets to sign his name at the end, right? But here, Paul lets him do that. In fact, it, it's, it's a little um, funny because um, the way it's worded in the Greek, it's kind of like in verse 22, I, yes, I, Tertius, am the one who wrote the letter. So he brings a little bit of attention to himself. Why? Because he, I mean, he's so excited he gets to write this letter down from the Apostle Paul. I mean, think about that. It's not just any book. Like, to let, you know, Thessalonians, that would have been a little bit easier to write down. It's like, you know, chapter after chapter of this hardcore doctrine and everything in Greek, right? Probably a little bit easier for him than for us, but still in Greek. Um, listen, we, we, we value every single person. And God saw value in Tertius, and we, we don't know the story. Someday um, we, we will in heaven, but he sees value in all. And every person who comes through our doors, right, we welcome, we're friendly. Every person matters. And every member belongs. And God wants all of his children to belong, obviously to him, but also to his bride, the church. And listen, Tertius might not have meant much to his earthly master, but he meant something to his heavenly master. And guess what else? He meant something to his church. And here the Lord uses him. And Tertius belonged. And listen, it doesn't matter what your role is, small or big. It doesn't matter what your gifting that's are, because every single person has one, at least one, maybe more. But there's a place here for you to belong, for each one of you to plug in, to minister to others, to be ministered to, to receive ministry, to hear the word, to do the work of the Lord, to serve. Listen, friends, God wants you to belong first to him. He is, I mean, he is mighty, he is kind, he is loving, he is gracious. Like, that is the father that you want to come to. That's the one you want to put your trust in. And God wants you to belong to him, but also to his bride the church. All right, I told you last verse, sorry. One more verse, Acts 20. I want you to see this. Paul gets together the Ephesian elders. Uh, very likely, Timothy was a part of that group. And he says in verse 28, he's given them an exhortation. Pay careful attention, verse 28, to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own 
blood. Did you see that? The church of God, which he obtained. Who obtained? Well, Jesus, right? But, but Jesus isn't really mentioned in the verse. I mean, that's what we know, but really the reference, the reference is really back to God. Right? Jesus is God. This is kind of a good verse for, for, for the Trinity, really. The church of God, which he, God, obtained with his own blood. Yes. But think about that. That should say something to each one of us. It should say, look what God thinks about his church. He shed his blood. He shed his blood. Jesus. Jesus. God the Son shed his blood for the church. That means he thinks it is very precious. Very precious. And guess what that should do to us? I mean, one, we should kind of be blown away. We probably need to chew on this verse a little bit today in our quiet times. Because he spilt the blood of his son for his church. For you. That means you. That means you. That gives it a lot of value, folks. He valued it. He greatly valued it. Enough to sacrifice his own son. Why? So that you could live. So that you could have life. So that what you, rec- you, you are due, you don't get. The debt that you owe has been paid. And you can have life, and you can have life abundantly. Not life as the world defines it, but life in Christ. Much more abundant, by the way. Much greater. Much more awesome. It should also make us do this. It should make us pause and think to ourselves, listen, I want to be a part of that. If God thinks it's, it's valuable enough to spill blood, to spill the blood of his son, to the point of death, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of the expression of that. I want to see what God has in store for the church. Right? Yeah, I mean, he wouldn't just redeem it, right? He's got to have a plan, right? I want to be a part of that to see what the plan is. I want to see what God's going to do through the church. It's through the church. It's through the church that God's mission goes forth. It's really the truth, folks. All right? It's not the civil government. It's really not even the family. It's really the church. All right? Sorry to burst any bubbles there. We're definitely pro-family, pro-life. But it's really through the church. All right? Think Matthew 28. Go. Who is he telling that to? A bunch of families? No. The disciples as representatives of the church. He's instructing his church what to do. We get a little snapshot of the plan right there, of the plan for the church. Listen, if if you're not a part of the invisible church, if you're not a part of the universal church, meaning if you haven't trusted Christ, I encourage you to make today the day that you do that. Trust in him. It is a beautiful thing. It is an amazing thing. Listen, 
Think about that just for a second. Here's another thing for you to chew on. Like the God of the universe, the one who created you, he knows you backwards and forwards, everything about you. That's kind of scary sometimes. But he does. And he wants to have a relationship with you. I mean, I mean and it's not just like um, as a slave. It's not just as, as a servant. I mean, those descriptions are used. But primarily, it is as a child. He wants you part of his family. So trust him today and become a part of his family. Let's pray. Father, pray for anyone here who might not know you. You do know the hearts of each one of us. And I pray you'd speak um, to any here who might not know you. Show them the truth of your scriptures. Show them the truth of who you are the truth of your son, reveal that to them. And I pray that you would um, show them how much you love them, how much you care for them, and that they would put their trust in you and the work of your son. Lord, all of us um, need to be reminded of that. So I pray for each person here that you would remind us of the beauty of the good news of the cost that you paid for us. How precious is your bride to you. We thank you for redeeming your bride, the church. We thank you for the redemption we have in you, Jesus. Thank you for the salvation. Thank you for the newness of life. And I do pray for each one of us, Father, that you would help us to continue to be conformed to the image of your Son. Help us continue, Lord, by your strength, by your power, by your Spirit, to walk in the newness of life that you've given us. And I pray, Lord, for any who might be discouraged, who might be struggling, that you would minister to them right now, that you would speak truth them, that they would be reminded of your goodness, they'd be reminded that your way is the best way, that you are the sovereign Lord who will walk with them every step of the way. Lord, thank you that you are so good to us. Thank you that we can be a part of the local expression of the church here, right here at Liberty Church. And continue to work in us, Lord, and through us for your glory.